0: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with breaking news in the politics lead at any moment. We expect President Joe Biden to begin making his biggest push yet for election reform. He'll take the stage in Atlanta, Georgia, in a congressional district that used to belong to the late congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis, who died in 2020. The president will be joined today by a group of elected Officials advocating for what they call the right to vote. We know that changes to the Senate's filibuster rules will be a major focus of today's speech because no Republicans support the bills Biden's pushing. So he needs to eliminate the Republicans' ability to filibuster the bills in order to get them passed. As of now, not every Democrat is on board with that change to the filibuster rules. Not at the speech, arguably the biggest election reform activist in the Democratic Party, Georgia's gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, who cited a scheduling conflict. There is, however, a coalition of high profile progressive activists who say they will not be there because they're sick of White House photo ops. They want action on the issue, they say. Let's get right to CNN's Jeff Zeleny. He's traveling with President Biden in Atlanta. And Jeff, we're expecting some pretty strong words from Biden uh, aimed directly uh, at Senate Democrats.
2: Uh, Jake, that's right, and President Biden will be delivering these uh, remarks just in a short period of time. Behind me here, uh, between Morehouse College and Clark Atlanta University, uh, the presidents of the college were just speaking moments ago, and they said this is sacred ground, talking about the deep history here, of course, with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, who studied on these very grounds. And President Biden is going to... really talk about that history. He was meeting with the King family earlier. He stopped by Ebenezer Baptist uh, Church as well. So the White House picked this location indeed for a reason. Yes, some a local a groups to criticize this as a photo op, uh, but it is a serious speech. And Jake, there are several hundred uh, people here. Some are elected officials, but many are not. There are many students here as well, and really a pantheon of civil rights leaders as well. And President Biden is going to use this audience to make his case for now is the time for voting rights reform, talking about two specific bills in the Senate that have been stalled in the Senate. He was asked just a short time ago as he left Ebenezer Baptist Church if there are the votes there, He said, keep the faith. So this will be the uh, certainly the most uh, substantial uh, speech he's given on voting rights yet. The question is, is anything different in Washington? Jake?
1: So Jeff Zelani, thank you so much. Uh, Republicans in state legislatures around the country have been since the 2020 election tightening election laws, in many cases making it more difficult to vote. In some states, uh, they have given more power to partisans and less to election officials. A lot of Trump believers in the big lie have been out there campaigning. Democrats say that they're pushing these two major pieces of legislation to counteract some of the Republican measures. Let's let's dive into what Biden is specifically pushing. The first bill is called the Freedom to Vote Act. It's nearly 600 pages. It's a less ambitious version uh, of the House's uh, bill called the For the People Act. Senator Joe Manchin, who's the most conservative Democrat probably, uh, was among its original co-sponsors, hoping a scaled-back version could attract some Republican support, but it has not. Now, this legislation, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, would make it easier for all Americans to register to vote. It would make Election Day a public holiday. It would require states to have at least 15 consecutive days of early voting for federal elections, with some exceptions. It will allow all voters the ability to ask for and use mail-in ballots without needing an excuse. The bill would boost security on voting systems, overhaul how congressional districts are redrawn, and it would impose new disclosures on donations to outside groups active in political campaigns. Now, the second bill Senate Democrats are pushing is called the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It's even narrower in scope because this bill is less about the mechanics of voting, more about preventing discrimination against voters of color. Uh, Democrats say it's a direct response to a 2013 Supreme Court decision that gutted in their view, a central pillar of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. All 50 members of the Senate Democratic Caucus support both the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. The problem is that Senate rules right now require 60 votes to proceed to a debate and then a vote, and there are not 10 Senate Republicans willing to allow a debate on either bill, even though one Republican Senator, Lisa Murkowski, said she would support the John Lewis bill. Democrats are still shy. Another nine votes there, too. So let's talk about this while we wait for President Biden to speak. We have Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York joining us. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Your colleagues, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, have repeatedly made clear they oppose getting rid of the filibuster. And they're not alone. Senators Mark Kelly of Arizona, Chris Coons of Delaware also have reservations. Isn't the president pushing for this change when it's realistically not likely to happen, setting him up for another defeat as with the Build Back Better Act?
3: Things change and I think having this debate is really important. Our democracy is the most important thing that we need to fight for. Uh, we are at an existential risk right now. We have legislatures around the country that are trying to undermine people's right to vote. Uh, having this speech by President Biden in Georgia is fitting. Uh, the Georgia legislature and the governor in Georgia are doing everything they can to abrogate people's right to vote their basic civil rights and civil liberties. And so I hope that we get these votes uh, this week, uh, that Senator Schumer puts both those bills that you mentioned on the Senate floor. and that we call these votes. It's important to show that Republicans do not want to protect people's yeah. rights to vote. And I think we should keep calling the votes. And I think it's important for Senate Democrats to continue to talk with one another about the urgency of the crisis we're in right now and how existential this is to our democracy.
1: Senator Gillibrand, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. Uh, as you know, Vice President Harris and Joe Biden, the president, are speaking right now. They're so a little late. Week. Let's listen in.
4: One year. Yes, please do sit. Last week, one year after a violent mob breached the United States Capitol, the President of the United States and I spoke from its hallowed halls. And we made clear, we swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And we will. We will fight. We will fight to safeguard our democracy. We will fight to secure our most fundamental freedom, the freedom to vote. And that is why we have come to Atlanta today, to the cradle of the civil rights movement, to the district that was represented by the great Congressman John Lewis. On the eve of the birthday of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. More than 55 years ago, men, women, and children marched from Selma to Montgomery to demand the ballot. And when they arrived at the state capitol in Alabama, Dr. King decried what he called normalcy, the normalcy, the complacency that was denying people the freedom to vote. The only normalcy anyone should accept, Dr. King said, is the normalcy of justice, and his words resonate today. Over the past few years, we have seen so many anti-voter laws that there is a danger of becoming accustomed to these laws, a danger of adjusting to these laws as though they are normal, a danger of being complacent, complicit. Anti-voter laws are not new in our nation. But we must not be deceived into thinking they are normal. We must not be deceived into thinking a law that makes it more difficult for students to vote is normal. We must not be deceived into thinking a law that makes it illegal to help a voter with a disability vote by mail is normal. There is nothing normal about a law that makes it illegal to pass out water or food to people standing in long voting lines. And I have met with voters in Georgia. I have heard your outrage about the anti-voter law here and how many voters will likely be kept from voting. And Georgia is not alone across our nation, anti-voter laws could make it more difficult for as many as 55 million Americans to vote. That is one out of six people in our country. And the proponents of these laws are not only putting in place obstacles to the ballot box, they are also working to interfere with our elections, to get the outcomes they want and to discredit those that they don't. That is not how a democracy should work. My fellow Americans, do not succumb to those who would dismiss this assault on voting rights as an unfounded threat, who would wave this off as a partisan gain. The assault on our freedom to vote will be felt by every American, in every community, in every political party. And if we stand idly by, our entire nation will pay the price for generations to come. As Dr. King said, the battle is in our hands. And today, the battle is in the hands of the leaders of the American people those in particular that the American people sent to the United States Senate. Two landmark bills sit before the United States Senate, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. And these two bills represent the first real opportunity to secure the freedom to vote since the United States Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act nearly a decade ago. We do not know when we will have this opportunity again. Senate Republicans have exploited arcane rules to block these bills. And let us be clear, the Constitution of the United States gives the Congress the power to pass legislation, and nowhere, nowhere, Does the Constitution give a minority the right to unilaterally block legislation? The American people have waited long enough. The Senate must act. And the bottom line is this. Years from now, our children and our grandchildren, they will ask us about this moment. They will look back on this time. And they will ask us not about how we felt. They will ask us, what did we do? We cannot tell them that we let a Senate rule stand in the way of our most fundamental freedom. Instead, let us tell them that we stood together as people of conscience and courage. Let us tell them we acted with the urgency that this moment demands. And let us tell them we secured the freedom to vote, that we ensured free and fair elections, and we safeguarded our democracy for them and their children. And now, my fellow Americans, it is my honor to introduce a leader, who is unwavering in his commitment to defend our democracy and ensure the ballot prevails. The President of the United States of America, Joe Biden.
5: lives and the lives of our nation, life of our nation, there are moments so stark that they divide all that came before and everything that followed. They stop time. They rip away the trivial from the essential. And they force us to confront hard truths, about ourselves, about our institutions, and about our democracy. And the words of Scripture remind us to hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Last week, President Harris and I stood in the United States Capitol to observe one of those before and after moments in American history. January 6th, insurrection, on the citadel of our democracy. Today, we come to Atlanta, the cradle of civil rights, to make clear what must come after that dreadful day, when a dagger was literally held at the throat of American democracy. We stand on the grounds to connect Clark Atlanta Atlanta University, Morehouse College, near Spelman College, the home of generations of advocates, activists, educators, and preachers. Young people, just like the students here, who have done so much to build a better America. We visited the sacred Ebenezer Bastard Church and paused to pray at the Crypt of Dr. and Mrs. King and spent time with their family. And here in the district, as was pointed out, represented and reflected the life of beloved friend John Lewis. In their lifetimes, time stopped when a bomb blew up the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham and murdered four little girls. They stopped when John and many others seeking justice were beaten and bloodied while crossing the bridge at Selma, named after the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. They stopped. Time stopped. They forced the country to confront the hard truths and to act, to act to keep the promise of America alive, the promise that holds that we're all created equal, but more importantly, deserve to be treated equally. And from those moments of darkness and despair came light and hope. Democrats, Republicans, and independents worked to pass the historic Civil Rights Act and the voting rights legislation. And each successive generation continued that ongoing work. But then, the violent mob of January 6, 2021, empowered and encouraged by a defeated former president, sought to win through violence what he had lost at the ballot box, to impose the will of the mob, to overturn the free and fair election. And for the first time, the first time in American history, they — to stop the peaceful transfer of power. They failed. They failed. But democracies — But democracy's victory was not certain, nor is democracy's future. That's why we're here today, to stand against the forces in America that value power over principle, forces that attempted a coup, a coup against the legally expressed will of the American people by sowing doubt, inventing charges of fraud, and seeking to steal the 2020 election from the people. They want chaos to reign. We want the people to rule. Let me be clear, this is not about me or Vice President Harris or our party. It's about all of us. It's about the people. It's about America. Hear me plainly. The battle for the soul of America is not over. We must stand strong and stand together to make sure January 6th marks not the end of democracy, but the beginning of renaissance of our democracy. You know, for the right to vote and to have that vote counted is democracy's threshold liberty. Without it, nothing is possible. But with it, anything is possible. But while the denial of fair and free elections is undemocratic, it is not unprecedented. Black Americans were denied full citizenship voting rights until 1965. Women were denied the right to vote just 100 years ago. The United States Supreme Court in recent years has weakened the Voting Rights Act. And now the defeated former president and his supporters use the big lie about the 2020 election to fuel torrent and torment and anti-voting laws. New laws designed to suppress your vote to subvert our elections. Here in Georgia, for years, you've done the hard work of democracy, registering voters, educating voters, getting voters to the polls. You've built a broad coalition of voters, black, white, Latino, Asian American, urban, suburban, rural, working class and middle class. And it's worked. You've changed the state by bringing more people legally to the polls that's how you won the historic elections for Senator Raphael Warnock and Senator John Ossoff. You did it. You did it the right way, the Democratic way. And what's been the reaction of Republicans in Georgia? Choose the wrong way, the undemocratic way. To them, too many people voting in a democracy is a problem. So, they're putting up obstacles. For example, voting by mail is a safe and convenient way to get more people to vote. So, they're making it harder for you to vote by mail. The same way, I might add, in the 2020 election, President Trump voted from behind the desk in the White House in Florida. Dropping your ballots off to secure drop boxes. It's safe. It's convenient and you get more people to vote. So they're limiting the number of drop boxes and the hours you can use them. Taking away the options has a predictable effect. Longer lines at the polls, lines that can last for hours. You've seen them with your own eyes. People get tired, they get hungry. When the Bible teaches us to feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty, The new Georgia law actually makes it illegal. Think of this. I mean, it's 2020 and now 22 going into that election. It makes it illegal to bring your neighbors, your fellow voters, food or water while they wait in line to vote. What in the hell heck are we talking about? I mean, think about it. That's not America. That's what it looks like when they suppress the right to vote. And here's how they plan to subvert the election. The Georgia Republican Party, the state legislature, has now given itself the power to make it easier for partisan actors, their cronies, to remove local election officials. Think about that. What happened the last election? The former president and allies pursued, threatened, and intimidated state and local election officials. Election workers, ordinary citizens, were subject to death threats, menacing phone calls, people stalking them in their homes. Remember what the defeated former president said to the highest-ranking election official, a Republican, in this state? He said, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes. Pray God. He didn't say that part. He didn't say count the votes. He said find votes that he needed to win. He failed because of the courageous officials, Democrats, Republicans, who did their duty and upheld the law. But with this new law in Georgia, his, loyal, his loyalists will be placed in charge of state elections. <laughs> what is that going to mean? Well, the chances for chaos and subversion are even greater as partisans seek the results they want, no matter what the voters have said, no matter what the count. The votes of nearly five million Georgians will be up for grabs if that law holds. It's not just here in Georgia. Last year alone, 19 states not proposed, but enacted 34 laws attacking voting rights. There were nearly 400 additional bills Republican members of state legislatures tried to pass. And now, Republican legislators in several states have already announced plans to escalate the onslaught this year. Their end game to turn the will of the voters into a mere suggestion, something states can respect or ignore. Jim Crow 2.0 is about two insidious things, voter suppression and election subversion. It's no longer about who gets to vote. It's about making it harder to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote and whether your vote counts at all. It's not hyperbole. This is a fact. Look, this matters to all of us. The goal of the former president's allies is to disenfranchise anyone who votes against them. Simple as that. The facts won't matter. Your vote won't matter. They'll just decide what they want and then do it. That's the kind of power you see in totalitarian states, not in democracies. We must be vigilant. And the world is watching. I have know the majority of the world leaders, the good and the bad ones, adversaries and allies alike, they're watching American democracy and seeing whether we can meet this moment. And that's not hyperbole. When I showed up at the G7 with seven other world leaders, there were a total of nine present. Vice President Harris and I have spent our careers doing this work. I said, America's back. And the response was, for how long? For how long? As someone who's worked in foreign policy my whole life, I never thought I would ever hear our allies say something like that. Over the past year, we've directed federal agencies to promote access to voting led by the Vice President. We've appointed top civil rights advocates to help the U.S. Department of Justice, which has doubled its voting rights enforcement staff. And today, we call on Congress to get done what history will judge. Pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Pass it now, which to prevent voter suppression. So here in Georgia, There's full access to voting by mail. There are enough drop boxes during enough hours so that you can bring food and water as well to people waiting in line. The Freedom to Vote Act takes on election subversion to protect nonpartisan electors, officials who are doing their job from intimidation and interference. It would get dark money out of politics Create fair district maps and ending partisan gerrymandering. Look, it's also time to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. I've been having these quiet conversations with members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of being quiet. Folks, It'll restore the strength of the Voting Rights Act of '65, the one President Johnson signed after John Lewis was beaten, nearly killed on Bloody Sunday, only to have the Supreme Court weaken it multiple times over the past decade. Restoring the Voting Rights Act would mean that the Justice Department can stop discriminatory laws before they go into effect. Before they go into effect. The Vice President and I have supported voting rights bills since day one of this administration, but each and every time, Senate Republicans have blocked the way. Republicans oppose even debating the issue. You hear me? I've been around the Senate a long time. I was Vice President for eight years. I've never seen a circumstance where not one single Republican has a voice that's ready to speak for justice now. When I was a senator, including when I headed up the Judiciary Committee, I helped reauthorize the Voting Act three times. We held hearings. We debated. We voted. Was able to extend the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. In 2006, the Voting Rights Act passed 390 to 33 in the House of Representatives. And 98 to zero in the Senate (coughs) with votes from 16 current sitting Republicans in this United States Senate, 16 of them voted to extend it. The last two hours chairman, some of my friends sitting down here will tell you, Strom Thurmond voted to extend the Voting Rights Act. Strom Thurmond. You can say that again. Wow. You have no idea how damn hard, darn hard I worked on that one. But, folks, then it was signed in the law the last time by President George W. Bush. You know, when we get voting rights extended in 1980, as I said, even Thurman supported it. Think about that. The man who led the longest filibuster, one of the longest filibusters in history, in the United States Senate, 1957, against the Voting Rights Act, the man who led and sided with all Southern bulls in the United States Senate to perpetuate segregation in this nation—even Strom Thurmond—came to support voting rights. But Republicans today are can't and won't. Not a single Republican has displayed the courage to stand up to a defeated president to protect America's right to vote. Not one. Not one. We have 50-50 in the United States Senate. That means we have 51 Presidents. You all think I'm kidding. I've been pretty good at working with senators in my career. But, man, when you got 51 Presidents, it gets harder. Any one can change the outcome. Sadly, The United States Senate, designed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, has been rendered a shell of its former self. Gives me no satisfaction in saying that as an institutionalist, as a man who was honored to serve in the Senate. But as an institutionalist, I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail and if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. You know, Last year, if I'm not mistaken, the filibuster was used 154 times. The filibuster has been used to generate compromise in the past, promote some bipartisanship, but is also used to obstruct, including especially obstruct, civil rights and voting rights. And when it was used, senators traditionally used to have to stand and speak at their desk for however long it took And sometimes it took hours. And when they sat down, if no one immediately stood up, anyone could call for a vote or the debate ended. But that doesn't happen today. Senators no longer even have to speak one word. Filibuster is not used by Republicans to bring the Senate together, but to pull it further apart. Filibusters have weaponized and abused all the state legislative assaults on voting rights is simple, all you need in your House and Senate is a pure majority. In the United States Senate, it takes a supermajority, 60 votes, even to get a vote, instead of 50, to protect the right to vote. State legislators can pass anti-voting laws with simple majorities. If they can do that, then the United States Senate should be able to protect voting rights by a simple majority. Today, I'm making it clear to protect our democracy, I support changing the Senate rules, whichever way they need to be changed to prevent a minority of senators from blocking action on voting rights. (coughs) When it comes to protecting majority rule in America, the majority should rule in the United States Senate. I make this announcement with careful deliberation, recognizing the fundamental right to vote as a right from which all other rights flow. And I make it with an appeal to my Republican colleagues, to those Republicans who believe in the rule of law, restore the bipartisan tradition of voting rights. The people who restored it, who abide by it in the past, were Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. They all supported the Voting Rights Act. Don't let the Republican Party morph into something else. Restore the institution of the Senate the way it was designed to be. Senate rules were just changed to raise the debt ceiling so we wouldn't renege on our debt for the first time in our history and prevent an economic crisis. That was done by a simple majority. As Senator Warnock said a few weeks ago in a powerful speech, if we change the rules to protect the full faith and credit of the United States, we should be able to change the rules to protect the heart and soul of our democracy. He was right. In the days that followed John Lewis's death, there was an outpouring of praise and support across the political spectrum. But as we stand here today, It isn't enough just to praise his memory. We must translate eulogy into action. We need to follow John Lewis's footsteps. We need to support the bill in his name. Just a few days ago, we talked about, up in the Congress and the White House, the event coming up shortly to celebrate Dr. King's birthday. And Americans of all stripes will praise him for the content of his character. But as Dr. King's family said before, it's not enough to praise their father. They even said on this holiday, don't celebrate his birthday unless you're willing to support what he lived for and what he died for. The next few days, when these bills come to a vote, will mark a turning point in this nation's history. We will choose The issue is, will we choose democracy over autocracy, light over shadows, justice over injustice? I know where I stand. I will not yield. I will not flinch. I will defend the right to vote. Our democracy against all enemies, foreign and, yes, domestic. the question is, Where will the institution of the United States Senate stand? Every senator, Democrat, Republican and independent, will have to declare where they stand, not just for the moment, but for the ages. Will you stand against voter suppression? Yes or no? That's the question they'll answer. Will you stand against election subversion? Yes or no? Will you stand for democracy? Yes or no. There's here's one thing every senator and every American should remember. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it will be even be less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. And if you do that, you will not be alone. That's because the struggle to protect voting rights has never been borne by one group alone. We saw freedom riders of every race, leaders of every faith marching arm in arm, and yes, Democrats and Republicans in Congress of the United States and in the presidency. I did not live the struggles of Douglas, Tubman, King, Lewis, Goodman, Cheney, Schwerner, Countless others, known and unknown. I did not walk in the shoes of generations of students who walked these grounds, but I walked other grounds because I'm so damn old I was there as well. (laughs) They think I'm kidding, man. (laughs) Seems like yesterday, the first time I got arrested. Anyway. But are struggles here, They were the ones that opened my eyes as a high school student in the late late 50s and early 60s. They got me more engaged in the work of my life. And what we're talking about today is rooted in the very idea of America, the idea that Annelle Ponder, who graduated from Clark, Atlanta, captured in a single word. She was a teacher and a librarian who was also an unyielding champion of voting rights. In 1963, when I was just starting college and university, after registering voters in Mississippi, she was pulled off a bus, arrested and jailed, where she was brutally beaten. In her cell, next to her, was Fannie Lou Hamer, who described the beating this way, and I quote, I could hear the sounds of the licks and the horrible screams. They beat her. I don't know for how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. Anel Ponder's friends visit her the next day. Her face was badly swollen. She could hardly talk. But she managed to whisper one word, freedom, freedom. The only word she whispered after nearly 250 years since our founding, that singular idea still echoes. But it's up to all of us to make sure it never fades, especially the students here, your generation, that just started voting as there are those we're trying to take away that vote you just started to be able to exercise. But the giants we honor today were your age when they made clear who we must be as a nation. Not a joke, think about it. In the early 60s, they're sitting where you're sitting. They were you, and like them, You give me much hope for the future before and after in our lives in the life of this nation. Democracy is who we are, who we must be now and forever. So let's stand in this breach together. Let's love good, establish justice in the gate. And remember, as I said, there is one this is one of those defining moments in American history. Each of those who vote will be remembered by class after class in the 50s and 60s, the 2000s and 50s and 60s. Each one of the members of the Senate is going to be judged by history on where they stood before the vote and where they stood after the vote. There's no escape. So let's get back to work. As my father, my grandfather Finney used to say, every time I walked out the door in Scranton, he'd say, Joey, keep the faith. Yeah. Then he'd say, no, Joey, spread it. Let's spread the faith and get this done. May God bless you all and may God protect the sacred right to vote. Thank you, I mean it. Let's go get this done. Thank you.
1: President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, this afternoon, wrapping up what the White House billed as a major speech on election reform and what it's going to take to get two specific pieces of legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, through the Senate, demanding a change of the filibuster rule so the bills can pass. Without any Republican support, there are not only Republicans, but Democrats in the Senate who do not like that idea. Let's go to CNN's Jeff Zeleny traveling with the president in Atlanta. And Jeff, President Biden depicted this struggle, which is about two pieces of legislation and a major controversial change to the Senate rules, in very stark terms. Martin Luther King versus segregationist Governor George Wallace, Abraham Lincoln, or President of the Confederacy Jefferson Davis. Uh, will that language work convincing the skeptics on his own side he needs to convince, like Joe Manchin and Kirsten
2: Sinema of Arizona? Jake, it's hard to imagine that this language will work among the skeptics, like you said. It's hard to imagine that really any uh, moment of history that the president um, invoked, and he invoked many of them, as you said, really casting this in the starkest terms about democracy, that this would change the minds of Joe Manchin. But it was a speech uh, designed to really make clear where he stands. He said, I'm tired of being quiet. It was a speech directed directly at the base, of course. He's been criticized and accused of being too quiet on this. So he talked about his love of the Senate. And he also talked about the flexibility of the Senate, specifically pointing out that just last month, the senators came together to uh, change rules temporarily to uh, raise the nation's debt ceiling. And he compared... Uh, the ability of when the Senate wants to do something, they can indeed make a change. And he talked about how democracy is certainly uh, as important as restoring the uh, full faith and credit of the government. But, Jake, it is unclear, uh, in fact, unlikely, at least from my ear, listening to the speech on this historic uh, sacred grounds here, no matter how much history uh, is behind it, that this would change the minds of Joe Manchin. Now, the question is, uh, can he be persuaded in some other way? Can they come together and get some uh, type of a smaller act done? Also interesting, Jake, he talked about Republican presidents before who have voted to extend the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, George W. Bush. So certainly so much history in this, Jake. The question, will it change the present day? And that is very, very uncertain. All right.
1: Jeff Zeleny uh, in Atlanta with the president and vice president. Let's talk about this all with our panel. Abby Phillip, first of all, welcome back from your maternity leave. We're we're happy to have you. Um, Let's start uh, with the fact that that Biden just made, without question, his strongest, starkest pitch yet for election uh, reform. Uh, There are a lot of uh, activists, voting rights activists, progressive activists, who have wanted him to be sounding like this since he took office in January 2021. Um, And in fact, some of them boycotted today because they said they're sick of White House photo ops.
6: Yeah, I mean, the problem, though, is that right at this moment, it's kind of too late. I think what activists wanted was for Biden to make this issue priority number one, to use the political capital that he had when he came into office to do this, perhaps instead of infrastructure even, and he didn't do that. And so doing this full-throated endorsement of voting reforms, is, is in the minds of activists good, but perhaps too little too late. Now, I mean, I do think it's notable that Biden did sort of drop a, a little note there saying he's been quietly talking to Democrats and Republicans on the Hill for the last um, month or so about this. He said he's not being quiet anymore. But the question is, what has come out of those talks? What has he learned as a result of those, those, those conversations? Because from what we are hearing on Capitol Hill from our correspondents and others is that there is no movement, either on the Democratic side or on the Republican side on these things.
1: Yeah. Now, we should note, Bakari, uh, there are 50 votes, Democratic votes, uh, for this both pieces of election reform legislation. But there are not 50 votes, uh, plus Kamala Harris, the tiebreaker, the vice president, uh, to change the Senate rules to get rid of the filibuster, which requires 60 votes. Manchin and cinema. not to mention uh, Mark Kelly from Arizona and maybe even a few others like Chris Coons, have said that they have a lot of concerns about this. Do you think today's speech would have any impact on
7: them? I mean, that, that is the million-dollar question. And for many of us, uh, you know, I, I went to Morehouse College where he gave that speech. I actually stayed in Graves Hall just f- off to the right from where he gave that speech in the same dormitory, Dr. King stayed in. And and Dr. King talked about the fierce urgency of now. And many of us wanted Joe Biden to have this urgency sooner because this would be or possibly be something that could get done. And the question remains, you know, will this change those minds? Look, I think he framed it perfectly. The the speech was the tone was great. The speech was good. The timing is what most people are concerned with, as well as the call to call to action. But this is this is as clear as I can be, Jake. And Chris Coons is a friend of mine. But if Chris Coons, John Tester, Mark Kelly, Kirsten Cinema, and Joe Manchin want to be on the side of, of George Wallace, want to be on the side of Strom Thurmond and many others who stood in the way of civil rights, even Strom Thurmond came around on voting rights. But if they want to go down in history as standing on the side of segregationists and those individuals who oppose uh, people who look like me, having free and fair access to the ballot, then we will remember them as such. This is that type of moment. And this is the urgency we have to have.
1: Gloria, uh, I I think um, Bakari's response to the speech is very much uh, in keeping with with Biden's tone, President Biden's tone. Uh, But what I've heard from Democratic senators that are concerned about changing the rule is what happens when Republicans take over the chamber? And because we have gotten rid of this precedent... All of a sudden, Republicans with a narrow majority of one vote or tie vote plus the vice president, or whatever, are able to pass a nationwide abortion ban or change voting rights even worse. Sure. Um, and that's their concern. Uh, but at the same time, they're going to be hearing from individuals like President Biden and, and Bakari.
8: That's right. Look, I, what, what Biden did was kind of dipped his toe in the water or thought he was dipping his toe in the water on getting rid of the filibuster, as he put it for this. This was a big step for Biden, who has been in favor of the filibuster, as you know, he's a senator for 36 years. He's always supported it, thought it worked pretty well, talked about now how the Senate is effectively a failure. And so what, what Democrats are saying is, if you're not going to do it to preserve democracy, when are you going to do it? And that is why you saw the president in this speech talk about January 6th, and how that failed and how as uh, the former president failed and tying it to voting rights because that is another part of preserving democracy. And so I think their answer would be, what's more important than preserving our democratic system?
1: So Ramesh, on the other side of of the aisle, Republicans, let's take the state of Texas, which passed one of these controversial election reform bills making it tougher to vote uh, in terms of how many days early voting can go on, how many drop boxes there are, et cetera. You know, by all stretches, Republicans had a great election day in Texas. Uh, They defeated a bunch of Democrats. They won a bunch of state representative races. Donald Trump won Texas. There are people who might look at that and say, why are Republicans trying to curtail the ability of people to vote if they did so well?
9: Well, look, I I think that our system of casting and counting votes doesn't get nearly enough credit from anybody. What we saw in 2020 was uh, under extraordinarily difficult new circumstances of the pandemic. We had high turnout. Um, We didn't, in fact, see an enormous amount of voter fraud, and we didn't see an enormous amount of voter suppression. Uh, But that, those sort of boogeymen have been the reasons why that the electoral system just keeps getting um, discredited and criticized by our political leaders and nobody's willing to stand up for what was in fact uh, quite a success story. And now we have a debate in which you've got state level Republicans who are pushing partisan legislation that whatever its other merits tends to make the Democrats think they can't trust the system. And now you've got Democrats wanting to pass a national bill on a partisan vote, and change the rules to do it. And I cannot <laughs> imagine a better way of increasing distrust in our political system beyond what we already have.
1: Abby, is there any room in the U.S. Senate for some of the more level-headed Democrats and Republicans to come together and pass something, uh, some legislation that would clean up the Electoral, reform, the electoral Count Act Uh, which Donald Trump tried to uh, abuse uh, and exploit um, when Mike Pence was there, hang Mike Pence, that whole thing, Uh, as well as making sure there are some basic voter protections? Um, Or is it just so partisan with one side saying, you're trying to steal the election, the other side saying, you're trying to steal the election and there's really no, no room for compromise?
6: I think that there is some room on the Electoral Count Act, there's perhaps a recognition that what is the the most, uh, you know, the scariest proposition that we all face is that there are all of these, um, you know, election deniers and and. you know, big lie perpetrators who are already in positions where they could try to overturn a legal election in this country. And that shouldn't be possible, frankly. And I think there are Democrats and Republicans who agree on that. Now, the question about voter protection, I don't know that Democrats and, and Republicans even agree on what that means. So, so if there is anything that will move forward, it will have to be extraordinarily limited in nature. I think even the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Act, uh, that, that restores the the Voting Rights Act is probably dead on the water because Republicans have moved very far away from the idea of the Voting Rights Act being a bipartisan piece of legislation.
1: Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester of the small wonder state, Delaware. Uh, she's in Atlanta uh, with uh, President Biden. Congresswoman, uh, last week on the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, you appeared live on CNN. You gave a very heartbreaking account of what you went through that day Moments ago, President Biden invoked the insurrection as part of his argument to pass election reform. But realistically, without changing Senate rules, which it doesn't seem like there are enough Democrats on board with to happen, those bills are not gonna pass. So is it time to start looking for a compromise, something that can get 10 Republican votes in the Senate?
10: Well, first of all, I wanna say that uh, I think the president gave as strong a speech today as he gave on January 6th, sharing with the American people his commitment to democracy, but also how high the stakes are for this country right now. And to your question, you know, I think it was also pivotal that he, as a person who loves the institution of the Senate, said that it is time to change the filibuster. And so I think that he sent a strong and clear message I think it, on the anniversary of coming up on Martin Luther King's birthday, it also is setting the right tone as we go into it. And really, we need the Senate to act. And we need to go ahead and reform that filibuster.
1: So, he, I mean, it wasn't just a strong speech. Uh, it, was, it was rather stark. He basically was suggesting that even Democratic senators that don't support changing the filibuster rule, and a lot of them uh, might have concerns about not the voting bills, the election reform bills, but what happens when Republicans take over? Are they going to not, if they're going to get get rid of the filibuster too and pass a nationwide abortion ban or concealed carry or whatever, he basically said that anybody who doesn't support changing the filibuster rule is on the side of Jefferson Davis, on the side of Bull Connor, on the side of George Wallace. I don't know that that language is going to work on Joe Manchin.
10: But I do think that he made the the real imperative call to Republicans, to Democrats, to everybody that this has to be a number one priority. And I think one of the things that gets lost is that this is not like a policy issue. Do you support minimum wage. This is the foundation of our country. This is about the ability to even be an American. And so what he was saying today to Democrats, Republicans, friends or or foes, choose. Choose ye this day. How important is democracy to you? And so I'm looking forward to them having a vote make your vote clear let the american people know where you stand is it on the side of democracy is it on the side of what's right we can't do climate change we can't do all of these other things if we don't have a country and so that's what january 6 that's why that was so important and that's why voting for these two bills and doing whatever it takes to the filibuster is important right now
1: but that imperative that you're talking about, the need to protect the right to vote, don't we need to, as voters, as Americans, combine that with the practicality of what is going to happen, which is Democrats are not going to vote unanimously to get rid of the filibuster and come forward and and work with Republicans to pass something. Because ultimately, Martin Luther King, a great man, but he, he... He also could talk about compromise and legislation in order to get things done. Remember, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were two different pieces of legislation because Lyndon Johnson didn't think he could pass them both at the same time.
10: Yeah. I mean, it's my understanding that there are some conversations, but I don't want us to get distracted. And I mean conversations about other pieces of legislation that are democracy legislation, but I don't want us to get distracted from this moment. And I would just encourage people. It's interesting. Before I came here, I decided to listen, not just read, but listen to Martin Luther King's give us the ballot speech. And in that speech, he talks about the fact that, yeah, there are, good people in the north and the south, and but we have to do our job. The, the White House, the president made it really clear today where he stands. The House of Representatives has already voted for H.R. 4, for the people, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. We need the Senate to do their jobs, and it's not just about one of us, it's about all of us. And that's basically what the president said. If we want to make sure that we continue to have this democracy that we say we cherish, then we need to make sure that we pass these
1: bills. So I'm from Philadelphia, which is in the same media market as your home state, Delaware. So I, yeah. I, I've read a lot about Delaware growing up. I don't think that Delaware has the easiest voting laws in the country, does it? It, it, and you know what? Delaware, just like other
10: states across the country, have to step up. It's not just what we do on the federal level. It also happens on the state level. And uh, like you, I'm also from Philadelphia, moved to Delaware. And so, yeah, I, we we are doing some things. We've got uh, individuals that are working on voting rights, even in our own state. And so, yeah, this is a national issue. You heard the vice president talk about one in six Americans can be impacted by not making, not by disenfranchising people. And the same is true across the country, seeing all of these laws that are trying to subvert and suppress the vote. And so, yeah, Delaware too, we're the first state and uh, we, we also have to be the first state to step up as well and make sure that everyone has the right to vote.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting. I look, I, I generally as an American feel that in addition to guarding against fraud, which there's very little of in the United States, yeah. It should be as easy as possible for Americans to vote because we are the best democratic republic when as many people as possible are represented, no matter who wins, Democrats or Republicans. But going over a lot of these election laws, I I, I went in preparing for today and I saw, you know what? New Jersey doesn't allow ballot harvesting, and that's a democratic state. Delaware doesn't allow uh, the kind of uh, early voting that a lot of other states do. Um, How come? But then... The journalist in me, as well as the cynic, says, well, how come Democrats only complain about the voting, strict voting regulations in in red states, in Texas and Georgia, and not in Democratic states like New York?
10: Well, I think if you listen to any of the voting rights advocates who are out here, if you go even in my own state, there are members of the General Assembly who are stepping up and working to ensure that people have the right to vote, you know? But I want to—I want to make sure that I, I get this one thing in as well. I want people to not just hear kind of like the the buzzwords that we all talk about. I want them to think about why is it that people would try to subvert or to suppress your vote. It is because it is that important. It is because it is that powerful that those votes connected to each other can do things like help us save the planet, can deal with issues such as criminal justice reform. And so I want people to feel that this isn't just an issue about what Washington is doing or what the president is saying. It is about their ability to exercise their fundamental right that people lined up for during a pandemic. We don't want people to have to ever feel that way again. We want to make sure that they can do it, they can exercise their right in a way that's safe, in a way that's secure, in a way that's fair. And that really looks really to help generations to come. That's why we're here. That's what this is about.
1: Eloquent, as always, Congresswoman Lisa Blunt, Rochester, from the small wonder state of Delaware. Thank you so much today. Really appreciate your thoughts. Coming up, or right now, rather, at this hour, breaking news. President Biden just moments ago laying out his push for election reform. But what's really in the bills he wants passed? We're going to take an in-depth look. Plus, temporarily grounded new details about the North Korean missile launch that forced the FAA to stop flights from taking off. And leading this hour, mask confusion. The CDC considering stronger masks to help fight the Omicron variant, according to The Washington Post, as we learn new details about efforts to get the youngest among us vaccinated. And as CNN's Alexandra Field reports, all this confusion on full display today on Capitol Hill.
11: Facing the highest number of hospitalizations during the pandemic, the FDA's acting commissioner appealing to keep the focus on essential services.
9: Most people are going to get covid all right. And what we need to do is make sure the hospitals can still
11: function. The most seriously ill are the unvaccinated. But there are no clear answers yet for how quickly we could see vaccines for children under five. Those
9: clinical trials are still ongoing. We are working very closely with the manufacturers, the vaccines on um, accelerating and making sure that uh, vaccines are available for the youngest children.
11: Hospitalizations for children are also at an all-time high. The CDC says the risk of hospitalization is now 17 times higher for unvaccinated people than for fully vaccinated people.
4: It's not only the fact that hospital beds are being taken up by COVID-positive Patients displacing the heart attacks and the strokes and the appendicitis cases, etc. Um, but also, this virus is spreading so fast that we have a lot of medical staff out.
11: Harris County, Texas, going to its highest COVID threat level for the third time since the pandemic began, while the state plans to deploy another 2,700 medical workers to assist with the surge. The strain on hospital beds, triggering a limited state of emergency in Virginia, the National Guard now pitching in in Kentucky. Not only are you distorting it... Dr. Fauci calling out Kentucky Senator Rand Paul today for raising money by repeating false claims, emphasizing the danger in that. That
0: kindles the crazies out there, and I have life, the threats upon my life, harassment of my family and my children with obscene phone calls... Because people are lying about me.
11: And as the debate over vaccine mandates makes its way through the Supreme Court, United Airlines reports their mandate has been a success in the Omicron surge. Prior to our vaccine requirement, tragically, more than one United employee on average per week was dying from COVID. But we've now gone eight straight weeks with zero COVID-related deaths among our vaccinated employees. And Jake, in this uh, latest surge, the Red Cross is now reporting the worst blood shortage crisis they have faced in a decade. They cite reasons for that as cases of covid uh, staffing shortages, cancellations of blood collection clinics, even weather. All that combined, they say, means that doctors are being forced to make choices about which patients get critical transfusions and which patients will have to wait. Jake.
1: Alexandra Field, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss, public health physician Dr. Chris Nell and professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit, COVID hospitalizations among children are the highest they have ever been. What are you seeing at your hospital right now? How sick are the kids?
12: Right. We're seeing in some ways a different kind of illness with Omicron, whereas typically you would see more uh, pneumonias. Now we're seeing more upper respiratory tract infections like croup, my- bronchiolitis. We are certainly seeing a lot of children coming into our hospital. And as we said earlier, they're unvaccinated. Generally, they're, not only are they unvaccinated, the parents are unvaccinated, the siblings are unvaccinated, and often that's where they get it from. If you look actually at the largest group in this country that is unvaccinated, it's people less than 30. And if we're going to get on top of this pandemic, we're going to have to vaccinate the young.
1: Dr. Purnell, today Dr. Walensky said this. Take a listen.
6: Hospitalization rates for people infected with Omicron are lower compared with prior variants. Despite a potential decrease in severity, the substantial number of absolute cases is resulting in hospitalization increases across all age groups, including children aged zero to four.
1: So even ICU admissions are nearing the highest peak of the entire pandemic. So is it really accurate to keep saying Omicron is, quote, less severe? How, how do you square that?
13: No, Jake, I don't think it's accurate to say that Omicron is less severe. Look, we know that any COVID infection puts you at risk for developing long COVID. We know that as the COVID cases explode, it causes a surge on our healthcare systems. And we know that those who are unvaccinated still are having worse outcomes with this particular variant as we saw with other variants. So we really should change how we talk about Omicron and just make sure that people understand that it's uh, contagious, it's spreading rapidly and that there are things that they can do to protect themselves as well as things that systems need to be doing to ensure that the public is kept safe.
1: Dr. Offit, um, sometimes it feels like we're in two different worlds, not just politically, but in this pandemic. I mean, there are people in red states who are just living their lives. Uh, They've been vaccinated, maybe the parents, but they haven't gotten their kids vaccinated. The schools are open, no masking required. People in blue states uh, living a very different existence where there's much more uh, intense scrutiny over whether or not you're masked, you're vaccinated, you need to show an ID card. What is your message for a parent in a red state who is maybe like, look, I'm vaccinated, everything's fine, I don't need to get my kids vaccinated. Why should that person get his kids vaccinated?
12: Well, when the virus first came into this country in January 2020, the mantra was that children get infected less frequently, and when they're infected, they're infected less severely. That's that's generally true in the past. However, what's happened now is that then we about three percent of the the uh, infections were in children. Now it's more than 25 percent because this virus, Omicron especially, has sought out a susceptible group. And you think it's going to be fine, right? That, that you know most children have mild illness or asymptomatic illness, and it'll be fine. But you know about a thousand children, less than eight. 18 years of age have died of this. I mean, of the children who, who have been hospitalized or go to the intensive care unit or die, about a third of them have no comorbidity. So therefore it could occur in anyone. Also, this is not a virus to fool around with. This is not influenza or parainfluenza or other typical respiratory viruses. This virus can cause you to make an immune response to your own blood vessels, which means that you can have heart disease, brain disease, kidney disease, lung disease, as well as liver disease. This is a different virus. This is like no other respiratory virus. So avoid it. And the way to avoid it is to vaccinate. I, I think it's just really hard to work in a hospital where you see so many children coming in who are unvaccinated, knowing that this is all preventable. This was hard enough last year when we didn't have a vaccine. Now we can prevent all this suffering and
1: hospitalization and
12: occasional death.
1: Yeah, it's infuriating, I would think. Dr. Purnell, counties in New York, Michigan, Utah are giving out free KN95 masks to the community. Do you think the federal government should make N95 or KN95 masks free, just like free testing has become the norm?
13: Emphatically, yes, Jake, Um, when we talk about pandemic preparedness, or we talk about what is an adequate and appropriate and equitable public health response, we need to talk about systems, federal government included, getting into the hands of average Americans, those things that will keep them safe. We know that high quality masks are more important than at any other time of the pandemic because of how Omicron spreads. So whether it's free testing or free masks or free vaccines or equitable access to therapeutics, we need to ensure that those things are reaching those who are in the hardest hit areas and that everyone has access to the tools and the toolkit that will keep them safe and protected. Anything less is just really uncalled for. And I think it's quite sad in a nation of this level of standard and development that we still haven't quite gotten right.
1: Dr. Affat today, Dr. Fauci said this about kids under five uh, getting vaccinated, which they have not been able to, to do yet because they haven't been cleared by the CDC.
0: This likely will be a three-dose vaccination for children in that group. So the trials are being done now as quickly as
1: possible to see if they can get that data to have a uniform dose and a uniform regimen. You're on the FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee, so it'll go to you before it goes to the head of the FDA, before it goes to the CDC Advisory Director, before it goes to the CDC Director. How confident are you the kids under five could get vaccinated, I don't know, before the end of March?
12: I don't know. I, we'll, we'll know when we see the data. I know that when we looked at the five to 11-year-old, there was really no difference in the immune response at that 10-microgram dose, given you know, th- two doses three weeks apart, in the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, 11, they all had pretty much the same immune response. Apparently that's not true in the less than five-year-old, where the dose which is three micrograms apparently looked like it was would likely be effective in the youngest child, but maybe not in the oldest child. So I don't know. I mean, we're all guessing. We'll see what, whether or not um, this is going to be different doses for different ages or whether it's it's going to be more than, more than two doses for different ages. Time will tell, we'll see. Right now, we're sort of in an age of science by press release,
1: so it's a little confusing. Dr. Purnell, Dr. Offit, thanks to both of you and thanks to both of you for what you do. President Biden promised there would be COVID tests for everyone. That hasn't happened. Why not? We'll ask the Health and Human Services Secretary under President Obama next. In our Healthy today, Today, an explanation of sorts from the White House and why it is taking so long to roll out the free COVID tests that have been promised. A senior White House official told CNN, there is finally enough global supply to start that process. President Biden said before Christmas, his administration would start mailing a half billion kits to home soon. Before taking office, of course, Biden promised to fix the testing problem, saying that anyone who wants a test can get one. CNN's Jeremy Diamond takes a look now into this administration's failure to get that done almost a year into being in office.
14: Believe me, it's frustrating to me, but we're making improvements. One year after taking office, President Biden facing a stubborn problem he vowed to solve. Long lines and empty shelves exposing a testing system failing once again to match demand. Biden's own rhetoric. Anyone who wants a test should be able to get one, period. Biden came into office with a plan to expand testing, pouring billions of dollars to boost manufacturing and ramp up testing in schools and underserved communities. But his top priority was vaccines, which kept most people out of the hospital and even slashed the chances of getting and spreading the virus. And then came Omicron. The vaccines were really
2: doing their job uh, to decrease the number of cases, um, so there wasn't demand. But then because of the variants, we've had this increase in cases and therefore increase in demand.
14: Biden has acknowledged coming up short on testing, but resists calling it a failure.
5: Well, I don't think it's a failure. I think it's a, you could argue that we should have known a year ago, six months ago, two months ago, a month ago.
14: But many public health experts have been sounding the alarm for months. Everybody saw it coming. We knew we needed
2: more tests. I think the administration had dropped the ball on this.
0: We're still way behind on
2: testing. Frankly, I think a big problem is right from the start, we didn't have a strategic plan about how testing was going to fit in with our response. And in
14: October, anticipating a winter surge, a group of experts, including Dr. Michael Minna, made an urgent plea to White House officials. Um, Tried uh, everything I could to advise Our government uh, on the need for these tools. In a presentation obtained by CNN, the experts predicted the U.S. would need about 732 million rapid at home tests per month by March 2022. Even after factoring in expected production increases, the experts warned the U.S. would fall short by about a quarter of a billion tests. White House officials say they didn't disagree with the goals, but by October, it was mission impossible. There were only a handful of authorized at-home tests and plummeting demand during the summer caused several test makers to downscale production. Republicans have seized on the failure, with two senators calling out a, quote, fundamental lack of strategy and failure to anticipate future testing needs. In his first network interview, the White House's new testing coordinator responding.
1: This administration has been pursuing a strategy to expand testing since its earliest days and will continue to do that.
14: The White House did take steps to boost production in the late summer and fall, purchasing $3 billion in rapid tests and spending another $1 billion to secure key supplies for PCR testing. And with a new fast-track to FDA authorization, there are now nine at-home antigen tests on the market. The result? At-home testing capacity is up, from 46 million tests produced in October to 300 million per month today. And the White House projects a supply of at least 350 to 400 million tests next month, according to a memo obtained by CNN.
1: We're not going to stop there. Those numbers will keep going
14: up in the months ahead. And Jake, the White House is also finalizing plans to send those 500 million free at-home tests to Americans who request them. Uh, The first batch of those tests, we're told, will go out to Americans later this month, and the rest will go out over the next 60 days. But Jake, while those 500 million tests, that's enough for two tests for every American adult, experts say that it points things in the right direction, but it's still a drop in the bucket, and it'll take months to get supply where it needs to be. All right, Jeremy
1: Diamond, thanks so much. Uh, Let's bring in Kathleen Sebelius. You might remember her. She was the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services under President Obama. Madam Secretary, great to see you as always. So President Biden came into into office promising easy access to tests. Uh, Almost a year later, a COVID test can still be rather hard to get depending on where you are in the country. And there's certainly, the White House will even say they don't have enough to be where they need to be. So, what's the problem? Uh, Some people say that they think the Biden administration put all their eggs in the vaccine basket and and ignored other ways to beat back the pandemic. What do you think?
15: Well, I think there's been tremendous progress made. uh, No question about it. It, uh, You heard some of the stats that Jeremy Diamond just uh, rattled off, but we're at uh, 300 million tests per month uh, out and available. We've gone from 11 point, we've gone up to 11.7 million tests a day from 1.7 million. We have testing available in about 20,000 pharmacies. It used to be 2,500 pharmacies. Community health centers have tests. So there there are two issues that I think the Biden administration has been working on and doubling down on those efforts with the Omicron wave. Uh, One is PCR tests need lab capacity, need a turnaround time and they have been free and are available uh, but in short supply not necessarily because of the tests themselves but because of the lab turnaround and that capacity is being built and ramped down. There were no at home tests available when uh, Joe Biden took office last January and now there are many that have been authorized by the FDA and as you heard A lot of the private manufacturers turned their attention elsewhere this summer when nobody was interested in tests when people thought that they were finished with this. um, Mm -hmm. So that we're ramping up capacity and the Biden administration also, as of last February, almost a year ago, invoked the Defense Production Act to ramp up capacity. So it's coming. It's not as fast as people would like. There definitely are lines somewhere. But uh, free tests are now going to be available for people who are insured and for people who aren't insured. There'll be an uh, ability to get tests mailed directly to your home, to go to a community health center and get a test. So access, affordability and capacity is really being built as we speak.
1: The administration says that insurance companies should start covering the costs of rapid tests by the end of the week and that those those 500 million test kits should start to be mailed to households. Later this month, but you know, this is January 2022. He's been president for a year. Uh, are those big enough efforts to correct the previous year's failures on testing? Not to mention the failures during the Trump administration.
15: Well, I don't think there was a year's failure on testing. I think the testing capacity has got, come under enormous strain with this wildly transmissible uh, variant with Omicron that just arrived. Up until then, people could get tests. They could get home tests, they were available for nursing homes, they were available for schools. What we're seeing is this surge is hitting a ramping up testing capacity. And I think they're doubling down now on the efforts to open new testing sites by the federal government to make sure, as you say, mailing tests home, getting them to community health centers, making sure that pharmacies have mm-hmm. them available. So it's it's really the surge of Omicron that has created suddenly this this uh, crunch of testing demand, uh, but I think we're we're up to the task. The Biden administration absolutely knows that's true. I think we also, Jake, have to make sure that those Americans who started on their uh, booster shots and don't have the second dose of vaccine step up. There's no shortage of vaccine or yeah. boosters, and what we know is that will take the demand down on tests. Uh, make sure you get those shots that are available all throughout the country. Uh, get your kids vaccinated and we can get through Omicron uh, with very little death and uh, very little serious illness if we if we take advantage of the tools we have.
1: Former Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, thank you so much. Good to see you again. We're going to talk to progressive Congresswoman Cory Bush about President Biden's election reform pitch in Georgia next. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you in our politics lead. Just moments ago, President Biden and Vice President Harris spoke in Atlanta. They tried to make an urgent case for why the Senate must pass two pieces of election reform legislation.
5: I've been having these quiet conversations with the members of Congress for the last two months. I'm tired of being quiet. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis? or Bull Connor? Do you want to be the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is
1: the moment to decide. President Biden pleading with his party to exempt these two election reform bills from normal Senate filibuster rules so that they will be able to pass on a simple Democratic majority vote, plus Vice President Harris, instead of needing 60 votes, which would require Republican support. But as CNN's Manu Raju reports for us now, it's not clear... There are 50 Democratic votes to change the filibuster rules.
0: As he makes a high-profile pitch in Georgia for sweeping changes to voting laws.
5: Pass the Freedom to Vote Act.
0: President Biden is confronting this reality on Capitol Hill. The Senate is poised to hand him a stinging defeat on a pillar of his agenda. There will be a moment of truth here. At issue are two bills that Biden is pushing, the Freedom to Vote Act which would impose an array of changes to the electoral process to ease voters' access to the ballot, and legislation to overturn a Supreme Court ruling that gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Democrats say that changes are necessary to combat Republican-led states that have fed off Donald Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen and have since imposed voting restrictions. So why go through this exercise, force your members, your vulnerable members, to cast a vote to change the rules when you know it's not going this is so important. The job of a senator is to vote. And the more important and pressing the issue is, the more that ha- plays. We are going to vote. To advance the bills in the Senate, it would require 60 votes to overcome a filibuster from Republicans.
16: I think part of the message that we have to continue to share is that people can trust that those elections in those states are being run by people that have integrity.
0: So Democrats have been working to allow the bills to advance with just 51 votes. Under regular order, changing the rules would require the support of 67 senators. But lacking GOP support, Democratic leaders are instead trying to convince moderate Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to change the rules along straight party lines, a process known as the nuclear option.
5: So what would a post-nuclear Senate look like? I assure you, it would not be more efficient or more productive. I personally guarantee it.
0: Manchin and Sinema are not bending to Democratic demands, withstanding months of pressure to argue that deploying the nuclear option would have damaging ramifications for the country. We
5: need some good rule changes to make the place work better, but getting rid of the full doesn't make it work better. Manchin's colleagues
2: strongly disagree. How is it? that you would disenfranchise minority uh, votes in the nation in order to uh, protect minority uh, positions in the Senate? That's a question I think would be hard to answer, and each member will have to look into their own soul to do that.
0: Now, just as Democrats have their divisions, Republicans do, too, namely over Donald Trump and his continued lies that the election in 2020 was stolen. Senator Mike Rounds over the weekend stated basic fact that Donald Trump lost the election fair and square. That prompted Donald Trump to come out and attack Rounds as calling him a jerk, calling him ineffective, calling him weak and saying he would never endorse Rounds in a future election. Now, I just caught up with the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, who told me I think Senator Rounds told the truth about what happened in the 20- election. And I agree with him.
1: All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining us now, live to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Cory Bush of the great state of Missouri. Congresswoman, um, let me start by getting your reaction to President Biden's speech today. Do you feel like uh, he made any progress pushing his agenda forward? Was it too little too late?
17: You know, I'm just glad that today the president of the United States said that he wants to see this happened he wants to see uh the eliminating the filibuster for voting rights you know so whatever happened yesterday you know today the president said it he said it for all the american people so that the people could hear it the senate could hear it you know um and today so now we need to take that and we need to run with it but i i feel like Um, you know, yes, we need, we can, we should expect more from our president. Absolutely. Absolutely. But our president is not the one who's going to vote. Our president is not the one, he does not have a vote. He does not, he's not one of the 50 that we're hoping to have. He's not even one of, if it was 60, he's not one. Mm -hmm. And so we need to turn focus, even more focus to those that are standing in the way. And they're standing in the way of uh, of what's needed from people who look like me especially especially why is it 2022 you know and we are fighting this fight
1: still so to play devil's advocate there are 50 votes all the democrats in the senate support both of these election reform bills mansion cinema coons all of them do there are democratic senators who are concerned that if the filibuster is eliminated for these bills, then the next time Republicans take control of the Senate, which will happen at Mm -hmm. some point, that Republicans will use that precedent set by Democrats and pass sweeping bills to ban abortion nationwide, to allow concealed carry, to curtail voting rights uh, in, in certain states in the neighborhoods you're talking about. Now, President Biden today said that senators need to pick a side, and he suggested anyone who prevents the bills from passing is akin to George Wallace or Bull Connor or Jefferson Davis, three of the worst people that ever lived in this country. Um, Can you see how maybe if I'm Senator Sinema, I might think I'm just worried about a nationwide abortion ban. That's not fair to compare me to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. What do you say?
17: So how, where is the, uh, you know, how do we know that the Republicans won't do something anyway. Because when we, I think that when we look at, hey, we can't do something as Democrats because what if the Republicans do this back to us? Well, Republicans have done you know, things to us that, you know, we said, hey, we're not we're not going to do something. Look at how we ended up with the Supreme Court. We have, you know, how did that happen? We can't keep saying, oh, well, what if something happens later? Right now, we're looking at facing 2022 elections. We're looking at what's going to happen. Are we going to keep the House? Are we going to keep the Senate? We have to make sure that those voting rights, that people aren't being that those voter purges aren't happening. We have to make sure if we could have an election holiday, You know, if we don't have people who are trying to figure out how to go to work and how to make it to the polls, if we if we can fix these issues for people right now, why not do it? I don't like looking at what could happen. You know what? There's a lot that could happen. There's a lot that the Republicans can do. And you know what? We can't even imagine what they can do, actually, because I remember just a few days ago what we did was we commemorated a day. We remembered a day that we never thought would have happened. So yeah. when we look at, well, what could they do? Can they do this? They can do whatever they, they can do. They can do that and more, regardless of if we push this forward or not. So eliminate the filibuster for the voting right for voting rights. Do it now. And let's make sure that the people who need the access have the access.
1: Congresswoman Cory Bush of Missouri, always great to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The January 6th committee reveals they want to talk to one of Donald Trump's favorite lawyers. Maybe they should set up a meeting at the Four Seasons. In our politics lead, a new Trump ally targeted by the January 6th committee. Today, Chairman Benny Thompson telling CNN that the committee plans to seek information from former Trump lawyer, Rudy Giuliani at some point. Let's get right to CNN's Ryan Nobles. Ryan, did Chairman Thompson say what information they want from Giuliani?
18: No, he wasn't very specific about their interest in Rudy Giuliani, but the fact that they are interested really isn't a surprise. Giuliani was Trump's personal lawyer in the days after the 2020 election and leading up to the January 6th insurrection. He was one of the most prominent peddlers of the big lie. And, of course, he gave a speech during that Stop the Steal rally on the ellipse outside the White House where he suggested that Trump supporters should engage in trial by combat. And that was, of course, just a, a few hours before the Now, uh, Benny Thompson said they are very interested in speaking to Giuliani, that he's on a long list of people that they want to talk to, but he didn't provide a timeline when they would ask for his cooperation, and he also wouldn't say whether or not they would subpoena Giuliani, so it seems as though this is still a process of the committee trying to decide what their next step is, Jake.
1: And then there's Congressman Jim Jordan, who has not completely ruled out, talking with the committee, you tell us. Uh, You spoke with him last night. What did he have to say?
18: Well, he didn't really provide much insight beyond the lengthy letter that he sent to the committee, which, as you point out, Jake, didn't specifically say that he wasn't going to cooperate, but instead said that he had no relevant information to offer the committee. Instead, it was basically just a, a bunch of, of accusations that the committee wasn't legitimate, and therefore he didn't need to cooperate with them. Uh, I asked Jordan repeatedly whether or not he'd be open to something uh, like a public hearing where he could answer questions where everyone would be able to see and hear from him. He said just to refer back to the letter i also specifically asked him if he had any communication with the former president donald trump or his legal team before sending the committee that letter and he just refused to answer that question jake
1: uh, tell us more about these pro-trump groups uh, that sent fake election certifications to the national archives falsely showing trump winning arizona and, and michigan the committee got their hands on them what's all that about
18: Yeah, it's pretty peculiar, and and Politico was the first to report this. These are uh, individuals and groups that describe themselves as what they call sovereign citizens, and they basically made these fake electoral certifications, even with the state seals uh, in some places like Arizona and Michigan, and then sent them to the National Archives if somehow that was going to mean that the archives would accept that as real and perhaps install uh, Trump as president. Obviously, the archives were able to sniff it out quickly and just rejected them, but they did let the secretaries of state know about that in these different states. Uh, many of these secretaries of states have talked with the committee. The committee does have access to this information. But it's just another example, Jake, uh, of the weird and sometimes questionable practices that Trump supporters uh, attempted to employ
1: to keep him in office. It obviously didn't work. Just Lunacy. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Appreciate that. North Korea launching a new missile and dozens of U.S. flights have been impacted. We'll explain next. Stay with us. In our world lead for the second time in a week, North Korea has launched a ballistic missile off its coast. Nearby South Korea says this morning's launch was more advanced, reaching 10 times the speed of sound. The launch also prompted an unusual move here in the United States, an FAA ground stop, with some pilots ordered to land and others prevented from taking off. CNN's Oren Lieberman has more on this launch and response from the Pentagon. Newly released
16: images show North Korea's latest missile launch. The ballistic missile flew more than 400 miles, according to Japan's Ministry of Defense, and crashed into the Sea of Japan. The missile went nearly 40 miles high and reached Mach 10, according to South Korea's Yonhap News Agency. This test coming one week after North Korea tested this, what it claimed was a hypersonic weapon. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, it seems, is reminding the West of his relevance.
14: North Korea has to make a decision. Do they go full provocation or do they wait a bit more? I think, I really do believe they wanted to give President Biden an opportunity to engage North Korea on North Korea terms, but Washington has not done that.
16: In early December, the U.S. and South Korea announced they would update their operational war plan, a classified strategy for how the countries and their allies would respond if war breaks out on the Korean peninsula. In the months before the announcement, there were four separate North Korean missile tests, including cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. The State Department says they condemn the latest tests, two in the span of one week.
13: The United States has been saying, uh, since this administration came in, that we are open to dialogue with North Korea, that we are open to uh, talking about COVID and humanitarian support, and instead they're firing off missiles.
16: U.S. Indo-Pacific Command said the launch does not pose an immediate threat to U.S. personnel or territory, and yet this from Burbank Airport in California.
0: some sort of national security threats going on, and we are not allowing except to maneuver in the area at the moment.
16: The White House says the FAA temporarily paused departures at some West Coast airports because of the missile test, but it's still unclear why a launch thousands of miles away had any effect on flights in the U.S. when the military was able to quickly assess the launch was no threat to the United States.
13: It was a 15-minute ground stop, uh, and they did it out of an abundance of caution, and they were going to be assessing their approach moving forward.
16: The FAA statement made no mention of North Korea or the missile launch. That part came from the White House and other officials. The FAA says they often take precautionary measures. Now, Certainly that part is true, but those measures normally aren't in response to a missile launch thousands of miles away. The FAA says the process of ordering the ground stop is under review. Jake?
1: All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Coming up in the Situation Room, new questions about tennis star Novak Djokovic's visa applications. That's next with Wolf Blitzer. I'll see you tomorrow.